stories. They're, they're wonderful, aren't they? And we all have stories to tell. And uh, the culture, uh, turn to Joshua chapter 6, um, which we're going to go to in a moment. But uh, the culture of that time, stories were told. Uh, I didn't ask him ahead of time, but I'm going to say it anyway. There's a book been written by one of our members on how to get the gospel to the oral culture, because I can hardly say orality, Dan. <laughs> I have a hard time saying that word sometimes, but Dan, Dr. Dan Sheard has written a book about how the telling stories and repeating stories, but more importantly, taking the word of God and passing it on so that it stays purely what it is to the heart of man and the lives of man. I don't know if I described that well enough to talk to Dan. He's written the book. He knows. Um, I was privileged to be able to give that to some people who work in cultures like that with tribes, etc., that would help them to be able to know how to present the gospel in a way that people will pass it on, not just consistently, faithfully, but completely. Joshua chapter 6 is a passage we're familiar with. We remember it maybe when we were in Sunday school. Joshua fit the battle of Jericho, Jericho, Jericho. Joshua fit the battle of Jericho, and the walls come a-tumbling down. I can't remember the rest of the song right now, song right now. No, uh, But, you know, we sing that song, and it, it's, it tells the story and reminds us of what happened. I'll, I'll come back to that a little bit later because I think in some ways Joshua didn't fight the battle of Jericho. <laughs> and we'll see that a little bit in this passage. But when you, and I should put my, you know, in so that we can actually advance this. Joshua, in this passage, is a legacy of faith. A legacy of faith, Joshua and Jericho. But in doing that, there are three, three words I want you to think about, about God and what God does. And later on, I'm going to give you, and Ray will be at one door, I'll be at the other, I'm going to have you just take a verse with you. It's got that little scarlet cord on to remind you of Rahab, etc. But there's a verse about God, about God's promises from the Old Testament, just taken from Old Testament books for you to take with you when you go. See how God uses that in your life, the one you pick out, without knowing what it is ahead of time this week. And maybe you want to share what that verse means to you. One of those verses have been quoted already, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. But you know, we're going to look at three words about God and about what God does impossible, improbable, and imperfect. And I have to confess that these words were chosen about a month ago before Monday's paper that said this, okay? I want you to know that I did not get this from this. The word improbable did not come from this story, this you know, little story that was in the paper, I think, on Monday. Um, something happened with... Uh, improbable champs. I thought it was going to be the Cleveland Browns, but, you know, I just, you know, I'm still waiting, you know, just like you were waiting, some of you. Apologies to the Steeler fans who might be here this morning. 
But you know, that's not as important as what this passage talks about if we have to go back in this passage to Joshua chapter 5. I thought last week uh, Matt did an excellent job on the beginning of that chapter, but notice at verse 10 to 12 here. Now the children of Israel encamped at Gilgal and kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at twilight on the plains of Jericho. And they ate of the produce of the land on the day after the Passover, unleavened bread and parched grain on the very same day. The manna ceased on the day, then the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten the produce of the land, and the children of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate the food of the land of Canaan that year. Father, we're looking at your word. It's not anything to do with my words that are important. It's your word that we look to ask for you to speak to us by your spirit as to what you're saying about yourself and about how we should live in our day and our trust and faith in you and to be able to pass that faith on to others as you would want us to so that you might be glorified and the church would be strengthened. For Jesus' sake, we pray. Amen. Notice, they couldn't have kept the Passover without what happened in the first nine verses that we had last week. Because you cannot take the Passover if you're not circumcised. You had to be a part, identify with the nation of Israel. And so... As far as we know, there was no celebration of the Passover in the wilderness until this point. And so they're following, they're, they're following what God wanted them to do in following the circumcision, that identification that Matt talked about last week. They keep the Passover, and then they get to do what God said they were going to do in the first place. You're going to enjoy the fruit of the land. And they get to eat the fruit of the land. And the manna ceases. Can you imagine? That manna, God provided that manna through all the time that they did very rebellious things against him. Think about that. Those 40 years, even though there were victories and there were things that took place in that time where God blessed them from the time that they left the nation of Egypt as redeemed slaves, they still did things that showed they were imperfect, showed that they needed to depend upon God, and showed that they needed to obey God. And you know, this is the nation preparing itself. Consecration, Donald Campbell says this, consecration must come before conquest. And so the nation is going to consecrate themselves, prepare themselves for what was going to happen in going into this land that God had promised. But notice the rest of that passage in chapter 5. Because, you see, chapter divisions are unfortunate. Because this really introduces what is taking place then in chapter 6. And it came to pass, in verse 13 of Joshua 5, when Joshua was by Jericho, that he lifted his eyes 
and looked, and behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take your sandal off your foot, for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. Here, Joshua is now consecrating himself. He's consecrating himself and preparing himself. God is preparing him. But when he sees this soldier, now remember, Joshua's a military man. Back, there's a story, there's an interesting story when Joshua and Moses were up on the mountain. And there's this noise in the camp. And Joshua says, it sounds like a battle. But Moses says, no, it's the sound of those singing that I hear. You see, Moses recognized that they were worshiping idols. And of course, Aaron said, it just came out of the fire. And Joshua heard noise, and it sounded like a battle. Joshua was a military guy. This, he's thinking about, this guy's pulled a sword on me. Uh, he's not going to get anywhere. But then he realized who he was. And he falls on his feet and worships. Falls on his feet and worships. Falls on his face to the earth and worships. And then it says there, very interesting, that statement there at the end, uh, near the end of verse 15. For the place where you stand is holy. Doesn't that remind you of what happened with Moses, the burning bush? And that time when God was consecrating Moses to begin to lead the people out of, Is out of Egypt to the promised land? Here's Joshua. Again, the necessity that consecration must come before conquest. Before we can go and do... Before we can allow God to use us to go into battle, to realize that the battle is the Lord's, we have to consecrate ourselves. We have to be prepared for what is to come. At this point, Joshua does not know what was coming. And uh, it's interesting what does come because... Awe-filled faith, and I'm using a phrase that I, I, I really liked when Ray used it. I asked him if I could use it. I think I have your permission, Ray, to use this. I think it's a theme that comes through the book as well. Awe-filled faith. To think that God would do something beyond all comprehension. That brings awe. Awe-filled faith believes in the God who does the impossible. Here's the impossible. Notice chapter 6. Now Jericho was securely shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out 
and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand, its king and the mighty men of valor. I'm not a military person. My dad was in World War II, and he was second wave of D-Day. I'm thankful, as I think I've said before, he wasn't first wave, because maybe I wouldn't be here. But, you know, I am... I, I don't understand, but I would have thought as a military person, you see this city, it's got walls to the ceilings here, maybe higher. They're not only that, they're, they're thick walls, and it's a double, if I could put it this way, a double-skinned wall. The city is huge. It looks impregnable. You're thinking in your mind as a military person, we're going to have to build siege works, we're going to have to do all this stuff to be able to get into the city, to be able to, how are we going to, you know, those questions going through Joshua's mind, and God just says, see, I have given Jericho into your hand. <laughs> That's fantastic, isn't it? I have given it into your hand. It's already done. Joshua, you don't have to do anything. I'm going to give it into your hand. Whoa. That's... So in the back of his mind, he's probably thinking, as a military guy, okay, what's the battle plan? What's the battle plan? How are we going to do this? Well... It's impregnable. It's unconquerable. It, no one has been able to bring this city down. How are we going to do this? Well, an awe-filled faith believes in the God who does the improbable. The improbable. Notice from verses 3 to 5 and then verse 10. You shall march around the city, all you men of war. You shall go all around the city once. This you shall do six days. The seven priests and seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. But the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall come to pass when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, that all the people shall shout with a great shout. Then the wall of the city will fall down flat. The people shall go up every man straight before him. Then verse 10. And Joshua commanded the people, saying, You shall not shout or make any noise with your voice, nor shall a word proceed out of your mouth until the day I say to you, shout, then you shall shout. You know, I'm, I, I'm not a military person, but, you know, I've seen Braveheart, you know, and, <laughs> and I've seen, uh, you know, the Lord of the Rings films, you know, and when they went into battle... And they went to the big cities. There was a lot of shouting. 
Mel Gibson really let it rip, you know? <laughs> You're to be silent? Oh, and this is something I would struggle with because now you're saying that we have to follow, the priests are going to blow seven trumpets, number of perfection, very, very good, but we're not allowed to sing or shout or say anything? And nowhere, nowhere in this do you find anyone saying any of the things I just said. You find as you go through this that all of them do exactly what God told them to do. This is improbable that you walk around the city for six days. Who knows what abuse you're receiving from the walls of Jericho, you know, can imagine what might be being said. And this is like totally ludicrous, particularly a course to the people that would have been in um, the city of Jericho. By the fifth or sixth day, they would have been, uh, it would have been unexplainable <laughs> abuse of the Israelites who are walking around. Taking them out, maybe they estimate 30, 45 minutes to walk around the city one time. Go to Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11. Beautiful chapter of, of many aspects of faith. It starts out, you know, early on that we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God out of nothing. It talks about without faith it is impossible to please God for he who comes to God must believe that he is, that he exists, and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. But verse 30, by faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. Nothing in that speaks of a military action. It only speaks of a faith action. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down when they were encircled for seven days. There's no questions by a military man, but a total acceptance of God's plan as being the best plan. And then he informs the people, this is what we're going to do. Improbable. Improbable. I have a little story to tell you, one of many true stories. This is not a parable. This is not. Um, but this is South Wales. And you notice there, you see almost there like a hand there. The roads are going up. Those are going up valleys. There's the Rhonda Valley and other valleys there, but one valley over here at near Aberdare and, and Coomdare and this area is, and Mount Nash, is the Cannon Valley, C-Y-N-O-N. Now, just to give you perspective, this is a picture of that portion of England and Wales, um, and if you're a fan, England beat Wales yesterday in the Rugby Six Nations, thank you. 
Um, but um, notice here is this, this circle here indicates kind of that area there. We lived in Bristol right here, and we would go over and minister over here in Cumbran, Pontypool, Abersacken, Blenavon, uh, right there in Abersacken. Uh, Jared will remember being there, and uh, two teams came from Mount Calvary to, to uh, work there in um, Blenavon and the schools up in that area and, and the churches there. So we worked in those areas of churches here and over here as well. And right over in here is a little, there's Kumder and Kum Aman in those areas where when you go into the village, you go out the same way you came in. There's just one way in and one way out because it's, it's in the right, everything just ends there. You know, that's kind of, I guess, where the end of the world is, or you can see it from there. And so, in fact, this area right here, you can barely see it, Gilfak, Gok, is these, and this whole area is where the Welsh revival took place in the early 1900s. There are chapels everywhere as a result of that. But that little place here is about three and a half thousand people, and it has the most people, percentage of people in the village who claim no religion of any town, village, any village anywhere in England and Wales that are over 1,500 in population. So this is a very, very needy area. So we were ministering in this area over here, and uh, there was this young girl. I love her name. Her name is Angheded, if I say that right. I don't know if there's any Welsh speakers here. Vicky, you might be able to. There's a famous actress named Anghaged Rees, Anghaged Rees. Um, and there are various meanings of that name, and I'll come to that in a moment. But she was a little girl that on the Sunday we started a, a, a week-long mission there. This little girl, at seven years of age, came to know Jesus Christ as her Savior. What I didn't know is that her parents owned the only shop in the village that everybody came to. The post office was there. Everybody came to it. This is a village with about 3,000 people in it, just under, around 2,500. Everybody's come in. We're working with this little Elam church there to help them reach into their community, in the schools, etc. And on the Tuesday, the pastor comes to me and says, you know, I think we have a little bit of an, a problem here. It's not a problem, but it's a problem. And I said, well, what's... Well, Angheded's parents are pretty upset. And I said, well, why is that? Well, Angheded would sit on the entrance to the store, on the countertop. Every person that came in, she would question them. Do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? Do you know if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you could spend eternity in hell? And I'm like, whoa, whoa, when, when, when did we say that? You know? <laughs> and, I'm, and so I said, okay, I think it's best if I go and speak to the parents rather than you as the pastor in the village. I'll go speak to them. So I went and spoke to the parents. I, I'm not trying, don't take this wrong. When I, I'm not trying to laugh about it. It's not. But... It's just what God does that's improbable. Is the mother said to me, 
and Herod is our, our, our fifth child. We had four boys, and then we had a girl. And her father called her Angheded because some of the meanings in Welsh can mean father's joy, much love. And so we named her that. And then she started to weep and to say, my daughter brought me back to what I, at her age, had experienced was coming to know Jesus Christ as my Savior. And I realize I'm away from him, and my husband doesn't know him, and I want him to know Jesus as his Savior. I want our family. I want everyone in the village to know. And so, I am not upset, but pray for my husband, who is... Several months later, I heard that her husband came to know Jesus Christ as his Savior through the ministry of that church. All because an improbable incident of a little girl, seven years of age, who trusts Jesus Christ as her Savior, then just shares with people. Everyone that came in heard the gospel in that village through that little girl. One other person that was in Bristol in our area Philbert was an immigrant from Guyana. His family came over, and then his father left them, and it was a very, very difficult situation. And Pearl, his mother, went through a lot, and his other brother had mental breakdown and everything with all that happened in the family. But Philbert was one who, who he just wanted to serve. So we would use Philbert in our camps, and he would do whatever he wanted in the background. He was not an upfront person. And Philbert, we tried to talk to him. Sometimes it seemed, my wife doesn't know me to tell this, but it seemed that he wouldn't be able to communicate anything to anybody. But when Philbert would pray, I wish I could pray like Philbert. I wish I could pray like him. It seemed improbable that someone like Philbert who is difficult to even have a conversation with, could have a conversation with God. Because God does the improbable, and he uses what is improbable to us to bring glory to his name. And that's what was happening there. Awe-filled faith believes in the God who does the improbable. Notice in verse 15 of that Joshua passage, it says this. And it came to pass on the seventh day that they rose early about the dawning of the day. They marched around the city seven times in the same manner. On that day, only they marched around the city seven times. And the seventh time it happened when the priests blew the trumpets that Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Now the city shall be doomed by the Lord to destruction, it and all who are in it. Only Rahab the harlot shall live, she and all who are with her in the house, because she hid the messengers that we sent. And you, by all means, abstain from the accursed things, lest you become accursed when you take of the accursed things, and make the camp of Israel accursed and trouble it. 
and all the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron are consecrated to the Lord. They shall come into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted when the priests blew the trumpets. And it happened when the people heard the sound of the trumpet and the people shouted with a great shout that the wall fell down flat. Then the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they took the city and they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both man and woman, young and old, ox and sheep and donkey with the edge of the sword. The seventh day, they marched around the city seven times as they had done before. This time, when they shouted, it wasn't their shout that brought the wall down. It was God who brought the wall down. And what's interesting is that the only structure standing was where Rahab was and her family. This wasn't an earthquake. This wasn't a natural disaster. This was God doing what he said he would do. But off-field faith also believes... In the God who saves, who does save the imperfect. But Joshua had said, in verse 22, to the two men who had spied out the country, go into the harlot's house, and from there bring out the woman and all that she has. As you swore to her, and the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab, her father, her mother, her brothers, and all that she had. So they brought out all her relatives and left them outside the camp of Israel, but they burned all the city and all that was in it with fire. And Joshua, in verse 25, spared Rahab the harlot, her father's household, all that she had. So she dwells in Israel to this day because she had hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out. Jericho. The only dwelling that survives, that total collapse of everything, was where Rahab and her family were. Just as they had promised her, she also obeyed what she was told to do. She listened and she gathered. And you remember, if you go back to chapter 2, what, it, what happened here? In chapter 2, it says this in verse 8. Now, when they had lain, before they had lain down, she came up to them on the roof and she said to the two spies, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land are fainthearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who are on the other side of the Jordan, Sion and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven and above and on earth beneath. 
Now, therefore, I beg you, swear to me by the Lord, since I have shown you kindness, that you also will show kindness to my father's house and give me a true token and spare my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, and all that they have and deliver our lives from death. So the man answered her, our lives for yours. If none of you tell this business of ours, we shall be when it shall be when the Lord has given us the land that we will deal, deal kindly and truly with you. And then she let, lets them down a rope, and from that rope is where um, you then have that signal of what part they were not to touch when the walls came down. They did not know that was going to still stand in the same way. They just knew they were not to touch that part of it. Here is God saving the imperfect. Can you imagine this? She was probably, this was probably the family business, prostitution. This was probably part of what was going on in that city in the fact that there was worship that was against all of what God's law said. When you read through the law, it's because that's what was going on when God said, don't do this, avoid this, stay away from this, don't allow this to happen. That's what was happening in the land around them. All the worship of man and beast above the worship of the Creator. And you can see that, of course, in what Romans tells us was going on. But God does the impossible and saves the imperfect. Now, go to Psalm 66. Look at this. This is beautiful. Actually, last week, uh, Rashid, when you were sharing, I, I was reminded of these verses in verse 10. For you, O God, have tested us. You have refined us as silver is refined. You brought us into the net. You laid affliction on our backs. You caused men to over our heads. We went through fire and through water, but you brought us out to rich fulfillment. And you talked about how even the things in your life, God had a purpose, even in the, what we would say, the bad things. He had a purpose through that. But verse 16, Come and hear all you who fear God, and I will declare what he has done for my soul. Look what he did for the soul of Rahab. Matthew 1 tells us that she is in the line of the Messiah. Notice that. She's in the line of Messiah. Down to David the king. Here is Rahab the harlot being a part of the fact that our Lord Jesus came into the world. Hebrews 11.31 says, By faith, right after the verse we read about Jericho, by faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. And then when James is talking about what faith is, he starts talking about Abraham's faith and works. And as he begins to talk about that, he switches to, likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works? When she received the messengers and sent them out another way. Her works, what she did, portrayed who she was, what she had given by God, and that was the salvation that only He can provide. You know, I'm thankful. I'm thankful. 
but it could be written. But I'm thankful it's not. That it would be written, Joe Duke's the drug dealer. Joe Duke's the drunkard. But it could be. Because before Christ, that's what I did. But I'm thankful that's not who he made me to be in Christ. And Rahab, though it's stated that way, in here it's reminding us that God saves the imperfect. God does not want us to be perfect to be saved. That's impossible. We only look to the perfect one, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, there are many ways to, to illustrate the gospel. But I thought, because the shame that would be upon someone being known as a harlot, someone being known as a prostitute, the shame that that would be, I thought it would be good for you to see a short video about what it's like in an honor-shame culture, what God is doing to get the gospel. What does that mean for the gospel to come into that environment? And it'll apply to us too. And you'll see yourself in this too. And you'll realize what God has done for you too. But let's look at what... beginning was God. He's like an honorable elder with a grand yurt. He's like the great uncle we all wish for, powerful, respected, and always faithful. One day God created the mighty mountains, the warm sun, and fresh waters to showcase his glory. Then God made Adam and Eve, crowning them with great honor and glory. He said, have my authority, rule over my creation, bear my glory. They were God's children living in God's honorable village. Even with no clothes, Adam and Eve felt no shame. Then Satan appeared and said, Get more glory, eat the fruit, and be equal to God. But the second they tasted the fruit, their honor vanished. They felt shame. God found them hiding. You have been disloyal children, shaming yourselves and dishonoring me. What do we humans do with disgraceful things like dirt, pigs, and outhouses? We keep them far away to preserve our dignity. So likewise, God banished them. Adam was dejected. I have no name, no glory, no family, and no honor. I have only shame. In the shameful village, Adam and Eve had children, who had children, who had us. Do you know what it means that we are descendants of Adam and Eve? Imagine if your mom was the village prostitute, or your dad defected during battle you'd get their shame. We inherit shame, then our sin brings on more shame. So one day someone had an idea. Let's make our own honor. They created multiple groups or cultures. One said you had to wear black suits and drive Mercedes, but the other determined you have to wear orange robes and be a monk. If you maintain the group's expectations, you got some honor and status. But this honor was temporary because it was made by humans. These group rules actually increased shame by excluding some people. 
Even when God selected one group to bless the other groups with honor, they boasted in their election and shunned others. When people tried to create honor for themselves, they only produced more shame. The only person who could help the honorless was God, the source and essence of honor. So God became human and entered the shameful village. Could you ever imagine a big politician with a mansion going to live in a trash dump? That was Jesus. Jesus was amazing. One time a bleeding woman snuck up and touched him, and he wasn't defiled or shamed. She was purified and dignified by Jesus. He loved and accepted everyone regardless of their shame. Jesus spoke of a great feast where the disgraced and dismissed were honored guests. Following Jesus, not the cultural rules, makes people acceptable and worthy. But the people living for earthly honor were threatened by this. So Jesus was arrested, mocked, whipped, spat on, and nailed upon a cross. He was covered in shame publicly. Why? Why would one perfectly honorable person be so shamed? The shame Jesus bore was not his own. He bore our shame. And then Jesus fully defeated that shame. He rose from death to glory. Jesus crossed back to God's village and got a great name and place of honor. Jesus' resurrection from the dead built a new bridge from death to life, from earth to heaven, from shame to honor. Finally, people could get what they always wanted, true and eternal honor from God. But not everyone followed Jesus to God's village. Some were content with the false honor they accumulated. A few thought their shame too great even for God, and others feared what relatives might think. But some trusted that Jesus took their shame and followed him. To them, God gave a new robe, hat, and inheritance documents. Humans were back in God's village. They lived honorably ever after. Um, just the last slide in remembrance here of this awe-filled faith believes in the God who does the impossible. I don't know what you're facing or what it is. God is able to do the impossible. And he's able to use the improbable. He does the improbable and he does save the imperfect. Aren't we glad that Jesus took our shame so that we might be honored. Ray. Just a <clears throat> scripture, uh, as, as Joe was talking about Rahab and uh, the imperfect and uh, in Luke chapter 18, a rich young ruler comes to Jesus and, uh, and he says, in essence, what must I do to be saved? And, and uh, he, he tells Jesus he's done all the commandments. He's kept them all. He's done everything. And Jesus says, uh, he says, what else do I need to do? And Jesus says, well, go and sell everything. The challenge for the rich young ruler was you need to let go of anything that, that you put before God, and then you need to follow after me. And, and the, it says the rich young ruler walked away sad. And, and as, as Jesus was talking with his disciples, his disciples asked, then who can be saved? And he says, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. 
So I think about an awe-filled faith and the ability for God to save the imperfect. Sometimes I don't count myself in that category. Too easily I pull myself out of that category of saying, well, I'm not so bad. And yet, if God could save me, then he could save, uh, he could save, he could sa- save my coworker who has no interest in God. If, if God could save me, he could save my neighbor who it took us four or five years to even begin to have a spiritual conversation with, right? He is able to do anything and everything. The, the, the Bible says that if we have faith to move mountains, we can tell the mountain to jump into the sea and it'll move. An all-filled faith. We need to continue to seek after God and continue to be in awe of him and allow that to increase our faith because our God can do the impossible and our God can save those that we think we never could save. So never give up. Um, I'm going to pray and then we're going to be dismissed, but I want to say thank you for, or sorry, no, we're not going to be dismissed. Stay where you're seated. Uh, And then I'm going to ask John Hickson to come up. Heavenly Father, God, you are good. God, you, you, you loved us so much that you came and you came to this earth to walk and live among us, Lord, and you lived a perfect life. And Lord, that, uh, Lord, you came to show us your, your love and your grace. And that through your death on the cross, Lord, we could be saved. Because without you and without uh, your your show of love and your grace towards us and your death upon the cross, none of us could be saved. None of us could have, uh, have the hope of eternity and, and the joy of life with you. And Lord, I pray that you help us to, to remain in awe of the fact that you've saved us if we're a believer in Jesus Christ. And Lord, that you help us to have uh, an awe-filled faith, the Lord, that believes and truly sees that you can do the impossible uh, in people's lives, even if, uh, even if we feel like there's no hope. God, I pray uh, that you would help us to follow after you and, Lord, be filled with awe and for our faith to grow and increase uh, as we chase after you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.